make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina. Keeping it non-controversial. Welcome to panel 12 on the intersection of technology and religion. I have here with me two tech guys who are also ex-religionists. I will let them introduce themselves and me, you know me, I'm here representing the tech incompetent side. Yay! So hello guys, how's it going? Hello. I'm Albert Billings. I work in technology and security and web browsers down in Silicon Valley. Uh, I won't talk about where I work because they probably don't approve it. But uh, mm-hmm. I've been doing this since the early 90s in a variety of capacities. But the last few years, I've mostly been working in security. Cool. Nice. So I'm Bob Caswell. I grew up Mormon, so that's my religious cred, and my family is still Mormon. I started working at a white box computer store in the mid-90s, building custom computers. Then I went on a Mormon mission toward the end of that decade and then came back and continued on with uh, techie stuff, did IT consulting for five to six years, and uh, then went back to school, got my MBA, and then worked at Microsoft as a product manager. And since 2013, I've been uh, working and living here in Silicon Valley, uh, working for an enterprise software company. I'll, I'll uh, follow Albert's lead and, and not say who I work for, but you can find me online. Um, and uh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'm not. you can find me pretty easily online if you want to look. Should I give a brief bio of my religious background as well? I grew up. Sure. Yeah, go Roman for it. Ca- I grew up Roman Catholic. My mother was a convert from Methodism when I was, I don't know, four or five years old. I was Roman Catholic, an altar boy, and all that until my mid teens. And then got involved with neo paganism, specifically Wicca. Met my first wife through that. And eventually, in the early 2000s, became a Buddhist, which I still largely practice, but we'll talk about nuances of that. And I still have a lot of friends in the neo-pagan community. But uh, other than relatives, I don't have a, you know much of a connection with Christianity anymore. Oh, and, and for to Bob's uh, background, I spent the age 9 through about 14 living in Salt Lake City, Utah. So I had a <laughs> significant... Uh, middle school Stranger Things era connection with uh, various Mormons in the Mormon church, but not personally, other than through school and friends. Nice. Never mow. Yes. Never Never mow. Yeah, it's so interesting. I guess you have not been asked before to give your tech cred and religious cred or ex-religious cred at the same time. I know, right? That's a first for me. (laughs) Does not normally come up where where we work now, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so so tell me, did did tech or the internet have anything to do with like your loss of faith or I know Al you say you still practice Buddhism but the times that you have left religion. Uh, well so I was on the internet actually very early on. I got on around 1988 or 89 through uh, I went to community college and college and was in computer clubs. So I was on wow fairly you no, know, I was on late period Usenet 
through the early 90s, which is long forgotten by most people, but was kind of message boards that ran on the largely educational internet. And I ran uh, computer bulletin board systems for a number of years with friends with dial-up modems, FidoNet, and all that. And so in that era, actually, uh, I was largely functioning as a neo-pagan, and I would say it definitely had an impact on why or how I, I kind of left Catholicism. But there was definitely a, a kind of California subculture of pagans, freaks, and weirdos on <laughs> various message boards mm. and the internet of that era. Very much the kind of the California ideology, utopian tech crowd uh, coming out of then. And so there's both kind of a, an attitude against religion, but definitely an undercurrent of people in, involved with this weird stuff, whether they identified it as religious or not. And so I, I would think that played a significant impact because I had a, a community of both people my age and people older that were somewhat um, skeptical of religious claims, but also, you know, trading amongst themselves in, in, in their little subcultures of things they were into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Bob? Yeah, so... Slightly different trajectory, I guess. Um, I did the whole AOL CompuServe thing, but that was like, you know, I was uh, in middle school when that was happening. And then the internet, when it started to take off more in the mid to late 90s, uh, I used it more more for gaming. Um, and I was still a true believing Mormon and growing up Mormon. And, and Mormonism allows for you to participate in, you know, regular life stuff. And, and Mormons were kind of afraid of the internet a little bit, but then sort of embraced it um, in their own special way. Mormons have a thing where like any new tech uh, retroactively becomes from God for the purposes of making Mormonism better. Oh, isn't that convenient? Use, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, so <laughs> so then, um, then I went on my Mormon mission for a couple of years, um, and then I got much more into the internet, and I was part of... Um, the original Mormon blogging scene. So Mormon blogging took off around 2002, 2003. And it was first kind of reserved more for liberal Mormons, Mormons who who wanted to self-identify as intellectual more so. Um, not that conservative Mormons, you know, I feel like I have to add disclaimers with all of this because it's not that they're not intellectual, but there are certain topic areas that you don't go into if you're just a more of a standard practicing Mormon, but then there, there are some Mormons who like to make a, a bigger deal out of exploring the unknown a little bit more. And so I got into that for a few years and, and that certainly did lead to my, what we call my, my faith crisis, which happened in 2007, where it all sort of came to a head. And I was like, oh my gosh, they, uh, they, they are not what they purport to be. And there's all sorts of problems here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say, I say the internet directly contributed but it's different for every Mormon. And, and now especially the church is really grappling with it because so much information is so easily available um, where you used to have to go to the library or get a book, which is kind of how I found out about a lot of the stuff that I that, that led to my crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, most of that's just a click away now. So, Yeah. So, Bob, Bob, I have a question for you. Did you ever run into, I believe it was called the uh, Saints Alive or I don't remember the names of all the websites, but in the 90s, there were a number of ex-Mormons or Mormon antagonists that were getting a hold of various internal church documents and rituals and putting them up on the internet. And I think trying, and I think they're evangelical Christians. They were trying to witness to Mormons to pull them away from the church. And that was a big thing in the 90s, along with the uh, anti-Scientology stuff that was going on. Yeah, no, I, I didn't get into any of that because 
the thing with Mormons is they're quick to disregard anything that's negative press from the outside. Um, what's much more convincing and what led me to leave uh, is more information that was provided to me through other active Mormons. So there's kind of two types of Mormon awakenings, I guess, or, or, or sources of information. There, there is that evangelical group uh, that, that wants to discredit Mormonism and, and make it so that they're not part of the same team, so to speak. Like, you're not Christian or religious. You're just weird. You're a cult. And, and then Mormons are quick to be like, don't listen to them. And even me to this day, like, I don't give that as much credit because they have an agenda. Mm -hmm. But then other Mormons who are just historians or uh, honestly seeking to just find the truth of how the church originated or what the real history is, that's much more compelling because you, you, you see them as, as your friends, as your neighbors, as part of your community. And when they start producing or providing information, then you take it more seriously. Um, and that's really what started to happen more in the post, post 2000 era. The, the nineties, uh, anti-Mormon stuff was more from the outside. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. And, uh, I can relate to that too, because, uh, a lot of people, when it comes to Islam, have an agenda in criticizing it, right? Mm. And so that, to me, has never been convincing to, like, join hands with conservative Christians or, right. uh, you know, to just shit on Islam. But what actually changed my mind on a lot of stuff is just reading the scriptures myself, translated. Because a lot of this stuff has to be read in Arabic still, and so a lot of people don't know what they're reading, Mm. And we also get taught, like, very curated, uh, you know, all the, the nicer stuff. I didn't even know, like, about the existence of some of the horrific verses or hadith until I started looking it up on the internet and reading English translations. And I was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I assume you've read, uh, like, Michael Muhammad Knight, some of his work before. I don't know if you've brought that up on the, on the podcast. No. Oh, he is. A, he's the one that did the. Uh, oh, what was it called? Well, he, he's the one that wrote the. Uh, was it Taqwa Course? Oh, okay, Muslims. okay, they right, right, right. Made right, them right. up as a novel, and then, uh, and then, kind of, he is a he is a, you know, white American, blue eyed, as he says, convert to Islam, and he's had a a problematic team, you know, which he talks about quite a bit back and forth with it. But one of his books, and I don't remember which one it was, maybe it was his one about Islam and DMT and drugs. Um, he talks about uh, like actually studying the Quran himself, you know, in, in translation or whatnot, and and kind of the problematic to him. Oh, maybe not problematic, but complex relationship with scripture that he is a convert who doesn't read Arabic really has mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like how various groups that kind of come from a more you know, multi-generational family, ethnic kind of background relate to the text and the religion than he does as an American convert who didn't even grow up Muslim. Well, it's not even that they relate to it. They just never question. It's just never been questioned. You just grow up accepting it, right? That's just how it is. And then you have to find some sort of twisted justification for whatever verse it is, even though it may go against your values, but you just know that you cannot question this. That's interesting because uh, for the Mormon side of things, um, the actual morality or questioning of the stories and, and their usefulness kind of comes later often as people find their way out. And what I mean to say is that 
um, historicity is usually the first problem. So, you know, Joseph mm-hmm. Smith, our prophet, he he translated another book of scripture from gold plates, and it's called mm-hmm. the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. And I've seen um, the musical. Yeah, so, so you know all about it. <laughs> That's completely accurate, I'm sure. Of course. No, I've seen it several times, and actually they, they get most of it right, which is kind of funny. <laughs> um, so, so I just want to point out that, you know, at first you don't question the actual tenets of, of the faith or, or, or what's written in the words, even if some of it is, is similarly placed or, or positioned like stories in the Bible that are kind of batshit crazy. Um, uh, what, what started me down the path was... Um, some studies that suggested that, you know, gasp, the, the book wasn't actually ancient record, but, you know, might have been written in the 19th century. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, oh, my. Uh, and so that was kind of, and this is a common thing for a lot of Mormons. It's not that they're, they, they jump straight to like, oh, that's a, that's a weird doctrine or mm-hmm. um, why am I living by this standard? It's more like, oh, is that accurately um, a book from from ancient Israel, or was it really written in the 19th century? And as soon as you get enough evidence to mm. suggest that it's a, it, you know, there's anachronistic references, uh, there's lots of stuff that's lifted from other sources, mm-hmm. um, there's lots to suggest that Joseph Smith wrote it himself or with the help of others. There's all sorts of theories there, um, and it's just that's just the starting point. And then once that falls away, then you're like, oh wait, what do I believe again? And is it really the best way to go about your life? And, and then that becomes more interesting once you get through the first layer of whether or not something is a historical document. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to have questions like, but if the Quran is divine, then why doesn't it mention dinosaurs or things like that? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I found myself going back to a lot of these questions that I used to ask as a five or six year old that seemed very logical as a kid but then you know they were so they were so easily dismissed or you were distracted and then you go back to them as an adult and you're like no 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 you were actually on the right path there right it's um, amazing how as a kid you probably had more insight than as a believing adult (laughs) yeah yeah because you're not your mind hasn't been fully indoctrinated yet i guess i mean my parents even though we grew up in saudi arabia my parents were never like hardcore um, forcing religion on us. They're very like secular Muslims and liberal Muslims. So I think that helped too. Like my dad always called out like the very Salafist uh, Saudi ideology because we're Pakistani background. So he wasn't really buying into that. And he was very irritated with the way things were in Saudi. So I heard him talk about that often uh, mm-hmm. at home. But things were so censored, even tech-wise. Like in Saudi Arabia, we didn't get internet till like the late, late 90s. Cell phones did not arrive till way, way later, um, if I remember correctly. And uh, movies, like even VHS tapes back in the 80s and 90s, like everything was censored to to shreds. Like if there was even a mention of another religion, it would cut to like flowers in a field or something. Oh, <laughs> not subtle at all. No, 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 not at all. So I think my background's a little looser because my mother converted after after a really long personal search, I gather, when I was, you know, a small child. But so I was growing up Catholic, and, and I remember being Catholic, you know, from my early childhood. But 
my mother was a convert, so I did not get the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, did not get the multi-generational Italian or Polish kind of Catholic experience. So mm-hmm. did not grow up embedded in that kind of matrix. And so when I was older, it was quite a bit easier for me to step away from that in mm. my teens because this is something my mother had converted to. And I, I had been, you know, somewhat devout when I was younger, but we live in a, in a, in a culture that, you know, is pluralistic and shows a lot of other ways and being exposed to that and living in Utah mm-hmm. uh, in the early stages of when I started to fall away a little bit from Catholicism, it was pretty clear. It was not the only way. And you saw a lot of other things. And my mother converted away. Uh, I quit living with her when I was in my mid teens to, to go back and live with my grandparents for school in another state. But my mm-hmm. mother converted away actually to Wicca when I was probably, Oh, uh, wow. 15 or 16 to a women focused, you know, form of Wicca, Dianic Wicca, which is women, largely women only, right? Goddess oh, religion. And so fun. people like, people like, Oh, you're Wiccan. Cause your mom was Wiccan. You got exposed to it. It was like, well, I didn't actually live with her when she converted, but she definitely had an influence. But mm-hmm. even when we were Catholics, my mother was a bit of a free thinker. So she had all kinds of, she had books on kind of the California Wiccan and other religious movements in the seventies when I was a kid and she had friends and various things. So it was not a, a straight jacket kind of religious experience. It was very much an exposure to uh, the plurality of things in the United States. Mm. So let me, can I, can I ask both of you, how did exclusivity play a role in, in each of your religions or, or uh, Al in your case in, in multiple religions? Cause from a Mormon perspective, it's like fundamentally it's it's a core part of the beliefs we have the complete truth if anybody else gets anything right in in life it's either by accident or you know just because there's some overlap in the general christian value sense of of how to live life but really the only true path to god and to what we call exaltation after this life and living you know an exalted life is through mormonism and so being less than 1% of the world population we sort of had to constantly sweep that under the rug like wow god's not very good at uh you know getting the word out <laughs> um was exclusivity like a problem or did you guys both did you both grow up feeling like it's no big deal there's lots of religions there's more multiple paths to god or or was it a big deal that everyone original eventually had to become like you i'll let you go first well, al sure uh when i was a Catholic kid, because I was confirmed in the church at like age 16, but I had, had already somewhat fallen away. When I was a kid, we're talking, you know, age five through 13 or so, you know, Catholicism presents itself as, you know, the universal church. This is the way it is. Mm. You know, let's look at our 2000 year history. Let's gloss over a little bit of historical details here and there about things that have happened. We don't talk about that. Um, <laughs> but it's very much the one true, you know, Catholic church. And so there was no, you know, there's a recognition, I think, being American Catholics that we live in a society with other faiths, but it's definitely considered itself the one right way and the other faiths are mistaken. So mm-hmm. there's no, none of that there. Uh, mm-hmm. Later on, when I'd already gone exploring, it was pretty much a self-driven process. So I, you know, I was interested in spirituality and I was interested in religious questions and that didn't change, but I realized that. Catholicism was really, you know, quoting a, a rendition, our version of the Bible that it had doctrine attached to, and it was the way it was, but there was already clearly multiple ways of looking at things. And so I think having that space where it was clear 
that it was not the one true viewpoint mm-hmm. and I was not a hundred percent indoctrinated in it partially because uh, I don't think Catholicism in America is really strong on that for the last couple of generations and other mm-hmm. part because I, my mother was a convert. Mm-hmm. And so, and I had family, I have family that are, I guess you'd call them evangelicals for lack of a better term, but mm. they're not, they're not, they, they're not, I mean, they're, they're, they're Nazarenes, which is a form of Wesleyanism, which is a form of Methodism. But uh, so they were a no card playing, no drinking, no dancing kind of church. But even mm. even their church was struggling with that a little bit in the uh, 80s because, you know, they would sneak. The youth group would have have sleepovers where we do all kinds of wholesome stuff and hang out as a group. But we would bring in VHS tapes of what? movies <laughs> that, that the youth pastor had screened as being OK. <laughs> like we saw Back to the Future. That sounds like, that. like Saudi. So, so they were doing an end run around like the officially we can't go to movie houses. I believe this is when when I was living with my my grandparents as a as a late teen. I ha- I wound up going to their their church a bit just because I lived with them, and uh, one of my uncles was the youth pastor at one point, and so I, I had a bit of crossover there with kind of Protestant Christianity, and even though I very much so identified as a Catholic, but even that group, like I was saying. They, they had a rule about not going to movie houses because it supported the pornographic industry. Because movie houses back in the day would show all kinds of movies. This was the, this is what I was told. Okay, they would have like, loved Saudi because we did not have movie houses. They were banned. <laughs> but they very much struggled with this. So even though that was the official rules, you'd see pastors like showing movies on tape at home. Mm. And it's like, what is really the difference here? The yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's funny because this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, uh, Mormons had a big thing of avoiding rated R movies. So we got even more specific at a, <laughs> at a certain point. We had one of our prophets say something in one of our conferences to the extent of like, you know, you have to, you should avoid rated R movies. And then it became a thing like, well, then should you go the extra mile? How does PG-13 fit into that? And then, and then you know... <laughs> If you think about it for too long, some Mormons would be like, wait, why are we letting an outside institution create the standards through which we... Ah, never mind. It's not good to see rated R movies. <laughs> it's so. funny. Yeah, I don't think we discussed all the ratings in Saudi because everything that was officially uh, available was censored. So even... Did people smuggle movies in? I absolutely they did. Absolutely. So it was uh, really exciting to watch the odd smuggled movie. So usually you'd get like... We we lived in compounds uh, because we're not actually Saudi. So all the expat non-Saudis often, well, not all, I guess, many of the expat non-Saudis lived in compounds where life was a little more relaxed and women didn't have to wear a burqa all the time. You'd still have to leave the compound every damn day and deal with morality police outside and <laughs> stuff like that. But within the compound, you know, there were people who would like, start little video stores in their apartments, in their houses. And so they'd bring their movies, always like Westerners who had the guts to do this because uh, anyone else with a government that wasn't too influential could get the chop chop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But a lot of Westerners did start like their their own little video stores. So we did get like um, uncensored Western movies sometimes, but when you went to the official video stores outside the compound, everything was censored. Everything was censored. And it's funny because they don't allow like movie theaters, so why do they have uh, video cassette stores? And they don't allow, uh, they think that, you know, 
photography is a form of idolatry, but they had like photo developing stores everywhere. Very strange rules in Saudi Arabia. Like, you know, for a school project, oftentimes I had to like take pictures of, uh, you know, old buildings and things like that. And my dad would have to step outside the car and like secretly quickly take the photo and like jump back in the car. Oh, wow. Yeah, because nice. cameras were frowned upon. Now, of course, it's all different because every cell phone has a camera and like cameras are now, even in Mecca, that was like unheard of back when I used to live there. Right. Like, so, yeah, lots of tech hypocrisy in religion. <laughs> so what about the exclusivity question for you, Ina? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there was, no, there was literally no other religion allowed in Saudi Arabia. So I didn't know about other religions for a while, especially not Judaism. Like, I did not even hear. Like, there's a lot of ex-Muslims who have stories about very anti-Semitic families and stuff like that so they knew judaism and they knew what it was and they hated it or they didn't know really but mm. they knew to hate it but i didn't actually even hear about jews like i don't i i don't remember really knowing much about jews at all until uh coca-cola was starting to come into saudi and someone told me it was <laughs> like i don't know some there was some jewish <laughs> conspiracy or something i don't know i don't sure. even remember <laughs> And I was like, what? And then I asked my parents, and they were very like vague, and nobody really gave me answers. So yeah, I think I did think that Islam was the right path, because that's really all I knew. But then I also had questions, because I had a lot of expat friends, a lot of Americans, and a lot of, um, you know, they weren't officially allowed to go to church or officially allowed to practice, but we obviously knew that they weren't Muslim. So I asked my Quran teacher, like, well, you're telling me that anyone who doesn't follow this is going to hell. But, but what about my friends in school? And he's like, yes, they will go to hell. <laughs> and I was like so upset about this. And now I think back, I'm like, my parents really should have monitored what this loon was saying to us because <laughs> they probably would not have approved of him saying that kind of stuff. They've always been very tolerant and, you know, they have friends of all faiths and they would not appreciate him saying to their children that uh, all people of other faiths are going to hell. Well, so, what about the conversion route, though? Did, 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 did you grow up with sort of a, a asterisk disclaimer that's like, yeah, it's okay, because eventually they'll get a chance to hear the truth, and, and then they can convert, whether in this life or the next? That was kind of the Mormon answer like to 99% of the world not being like you. is like, oh, they just haven't had their chance to 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 convert or to hear the truth and make a decision. Uh, did you have any equivalent to that or, or not so much? Yeah, yeah, we did hear that. We heard that they could just, you know, recite a verse and then they'd be saved, right? And then they'd be oh, Muslim. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> yeah. So there was that. But also there wasn't a very uh, keen conversion industry. It seemed almost very elitist. Even now, I don't see a lot of Muslims trying to, like, evangelize and save people in the way that Christians do, you know? Interesting. I wonder why that is. Like, if that's just historical, or if it's um, just not in focus because they feel like they've already done pretty well in terms of you know the world population and their percentage of it, or I, I don't know. Yeah, I. I mean, I guess people like ISIS and I mean, there are propaganda videos and YouTube's helping to spread that message, but I just didn't get that 
sense, the way that I've been approached by Christians, you know, on university, like I've never been approached by Muslims to be saved in that way. I also think that there's a bit of snobbery there. Like if you're considered too corrupt, like fuck off, no one's going to bother maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I was under the impression that there was a certain amount of conversion activity, at least in North America, just because I've known over the years a variety of people that did, did not grow up Muslim that converted. Yeah, you know uh, what? Either in, prisons, in the 70s. Oh, yes, that makes sense. In prisons, there's a lot of people like pushing for Islamic conversion. But in my personal life, I really I felt that Muslims were very snobby about it and didn't want to convert people there's no mm. organized you know like um missionary trips to countries i mean i guess if you think like the isis propaganda is an yeah. equivalent of that but <laughs> but yeah far removed from catholicism i mean for for decades now because i'm in my mid-40s but uh you know going to college and being around, you don't see a lot of emphasis within the Catholic Church on conversion in, at least in the Western world. I'm sure in Africa, where they, they yeah, may have yeah. quite different. But, you know, if you wanted to go to talk to a Catholic priest on campus, there was probably, you know, a, a student group that was associated with Catholicism, sometimes even the equivalent of a fraternity or a house of some sort, right? And so they were there if people found them but yeah they didn't stand around not like the uh, the christian evangelicals and like yeah. they didn't stand around placards, no even in to uh, toronto uh around eaton center there's a lot of these like tables uh there's one table for like free quran information and then there's the christian activists who are so much more active and uh pushy even and the quran people just kind of quietly sit there and they have a sign that you can come talk to them but i haven't I haven't been approached by them. I, this is so strange. I'm only just thinking about this now. It, it can't be real. I don't. I don't know. Maybe the Muslims well, are just not that organized. Maybe I don't. Bob know. is probably aware of this. I mean, here in the Bay Area, you will run into Jehovah's Witnesses quite a bit. Oh yes. Uh, oh yeah. Doesn't here too. What, <laughs> doesn't matter what sign I put on my door about no soliciting. They inform me that they're not soliciting and will still knock on my door. Um, but in the local BART stations, or, or kind of metro or subway, they often have tables, and the same at the airports. It's you know, a, it's funny. Uh, the last time they stopped by, uh, I was being nice and listening to their message. And then my wife came came up from behind and just like, "Oh, it's okay. We're already Mormon." And then they were like, "Oh, thank you for your time." And then they just took off because you know, Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons aren't um, aren't known for you know being the best of friends because uh -huh. we're sort of different flavors of the same sort of style. Uh -huh. um, so it's just an easy way to um, get them to remove themselves from your doorstep. Um, See, I love when they come to visit because I invite them in and I'm like, do you want to talk about, you know, the church of oh, Satan? Oh, don't do that. Yeah, no, they actually, they get, they get scared. They have never set foot in my house. I, I always invite them in. But I think... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, because I want to try and... Uh, evangelize, deconverting them to them. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I have similar intentions, and I'm I'm overly nice and want to just kind of open up and just hear what they have to say. But it also takes a lot of time, and and there's I'm under no illusions that that there's any chance that either side is gonna is gonna change. There's a progressive much. slide. Like the first, you know, I've lived in my current house for 11 years. The first few years, you're oh, you're nice because it's usually older men and women, often women, grandma kind of age. Oh, and is you it? You don't want to be rude. 
Yeah, here oh, it here is. they it's send a, like it, younger, like maybe late teens, early twenties people. You sure that you're not mixing it up with the Mormons? <laughs> that's the that's the Mormon age, yeah. nineteen nineteen year olds. Uh, now here I'm Oakland, confused. <laughs> here in Oakland, they're normally they're normally black, and they're they're older men and women. I don't know what the demographics of the Jehovah Witnesses are in the Bay Area, but I assume that that's part of their demographic. And they're very polite. They're wearing their Sunday best, and they come and knock, and you don't want to be rude at least the first few times. And so you have a polite conversation and like you take their pamphlet just to get them to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, politely. And then when you see the same people, especially when you, and I started putting up a no soliciting sign, it's the same, like there's, there, you'll get different individuals, but it's the same, like six or eight people. Right? And over time you're just like, no, I'm not interested. <laughs> you just, you know, <laughs> this gradual slide into impoliteness. We're Buddhists. Please leave. Um, <laughs> I think they've blacklisted oh. my house because uh, every time I say something about how Satan is awesome, <laughs> then I invite <laughs> them in. And, yeah, they're like, oh, God. They walk away. When oh, I was boy. a neo-pagan, the neo-pagans used to share. This is this was back in the, in the, in the 90s. Used to share various what I told the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons when they came to my door stories of one-upping each other on not, not rude explicitly kind of things normally, though that happened occasionally, but just strange things they mm-hmm. did. Like the time we were all in ritual robes about to do a circle in the oh. back there was a knock at the door. And so you walk up holding like a candle in one hand, wearing a black robe and a necklace. You, know, and you open the door, yes, can I help you? You know, think stories like that. Um, See, that's when you invite them in. Well, they won't come in. I know. <laughs> I don't. I don't like inviting them into my house anyway, because once they're inside, this is you know, this applies to anybody coming to my door. Once they're inside, then you have to get them to leave. But they <laughs> won't. Your, they won't set foot in your house. Exactly. Oh uh, well, because if they're on your porch, you can just shut the door. I'm like, mm. no, I'm going to slam, pull the blinds down. Um, <laughs> Oh, you're such a mean, <laughs> I feel well, bad for, it's funny how with Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm like, ah, whatever. But then I'm like, oh, the Mormons visiting you, you should be nicer <laughs> to them. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I've only had the Mormons show up once. And, 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 and as Bob knows, they're very easy to spot. Yep. You know, they put their bicycles <laughs> off to the side and then they walk up to the front door in their white shirts and their ties and their little name tags. Yeah. And this is Elder So-and-so and he's <laughs> 20 and this is Elder So-and-so. And you're like, oh, Hello. And then I don't I don't even know what I said to them last time. I might have given them a story about growing up partially in Utah, and I was well familiar with their faith. And no, thank you, goodbye. But uh, I try I try to be polite. You know, I generally speaking, I've been I'm not always a polite person in general. I, <laughs> Let uh, the records show Al yeah. is a polite person. <laughs> I'm often Bob, vul- I'm often vulgar you? and drop a lot of f bombs in speech. But you know, I don't. I don't get anything out of being rude. There's no personal gain in it, mm. and in any sense. And and civility in society, I've probably been raised of of the right generation or with the right parents or something. That it's just like no, thank you. It's only <laughs> when they they impose or they just won't go away that you start losing your. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Bob, did you yeah. do those door to door things? I did. Oh, I did. I I tried to avoid it as much as possible because I mean. As a 19-year-old kid, it, I mean, it it helped me come out of my shell, though. I mean, I, I did all, all of those activities. So as a missionary, I mean, you wake up, you do your scripture study, you get ready for the day. And um, unless you have actual, what, what we refer to as Gentiles, you know, non-Mormons who are interested in hearing you teach them, and you have some pre-scheduled uh, meetings with them, 
your day is all about finding those people. And since they're few and far between where you get past that first interaction at the doorstep, that's like, you know, 80% of what you're doing is knocking on doors. And we, we had, we had binders where we kept track. It's, I'm sure it's uh, updated now with probably more tech involved, but at the time we kept track of area maps of when the last time this had been, what we called tracked it out. We called it tracting, which is just a Mormon made up word for going door to door. Um, and then we had something else called street boarding, which is where you go to like uh, the center of the town and set up a display and then, you know, have a table. And as people walk by, you try to try to get their interest in a polite, uh, not too aggressive, but not too meek way either. You've had to find that balance. Um, mm. and- Do you think they'll have like drones doing that <laughs> eventually? Like. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> because Mormons are... a personal touch. Yeah, Mormons are all about they they like the human connection and they they want a chance to 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 get you in a place where you're going to feel the spirit is is what we call what it. What if it's is, like a drone with a uh, with an iPad attached and you can just like <laughs> Skype in? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it'd be the equivalent of saying, "Hey, we don't need to go to church anymore. You just you just Skype into something. Something something's lost. You're not gonna you're not gonna feel the warm fuzzies anymore. Mm-hmm, you got to mm-hmm. be there in person." But there are things like that happening, right? And that's a great segue into what the stuff that we want to talk about. <laughs> like, there's a priest. <laughs> sure. There's a robot priest in Germany that emits light from his hands, and uh, what's he called? I, while you're looking that up, I just say. Mormons aren't big on this kind of stuff because they they feel like they already have the truth. Um, they they only use tech if it's a means to to reaching people more quickly or getting missionary work done better. But but in the end, you need to you need to all be in the same place. You need to have that physical touch. Uh, I I'd I'd be very surprised if any Mormons actually tried to do anything this tech involved. I'm always fascinated when other Christian denominations like go all in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, he's called Bless You Too. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so what What are your thoughts on this um, robot priest that you can just go and get blessings from? Like, as you guys were saying that, you know, a religion does involve that human touch, but as it's embracing tech, what do you think the implications of that are? That doesn't seem very meaningful to me. They have a. They also, I've seen demonstrations of robots in Japan that will chant the Heart Sutra, for example, that were one-offs at tech conferences or uh, trade shows, right? Mm-hmm. And it just, I can understand, like, if you're culturally familiar with something, regardless of the church or the faith, and seeing a machine kind of engaging in some aspect of it, it might be, I don't know, cute or mm-hmm. amusing or interesting in some way. But it doesn't strike me as something that's going to be terribly meaningful because... For most people, I think religious faith or even a sense of spirituality is very much a, a, a human connection and human feeling kind of thing, either whether you're doing it solitary or with others, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're doing it solitary, you know, you don't need technology. You know, I'll put a little asterisk there because I can think of a few examples. But if you're doing it with others, the technology isn't really going to help unless it's a, a mediating device to help you connect directly to others, like, say, Skype or, or conferencing or something like that, right? Right. Yeah, I'd say... Most of the tech that's embraced, at least from the the Mormon angle, is stuff like putting your scriptures on an app or mm-hmm. 
uh, genealogy is a huge part of Mormonism and the fact that there, there are these companies, a lot of them founded in Utah, um, like Ancestry.com, which is oh. all about finding you know, your, your family roots. And the reason for that is, is there's a very specific Mormon doctrine where we go and do something called baptisms for the dead, where, wherein if you lived on the earth before Mormonism came to be, which you know, Mormonism is a restorationist sort of um, religion where you know, the world was in darkness after Jesus left the earth until uh, until God revealed the truth back through Mormons. So there's this period of a couple thousand years where a lot of people lived and died and never experienced the the appropriate way to to get the right ordinance ordinances, be baptized, and have a chance to accept all that's required for for you know exaltation, all that good stuff. So anyway, so therefore Mormons are very literal and they literally have a, a ritual through which they they are baptized over and over again for people that came before and it's a special it's a very special experience to be baptized for for your actual relatives so that your whole lineage in in the hereafter gets a chance to accept the truth um, because if if they don't have somebody who's done it sounds ridiculous now that I'm trying to explain it to like a, <laughs> <laughs> to a non-mormon audience but for some reason, God is a stickler when it comes to the rules, guys. So you, you got to get your work done in order. Like you can be very loving and accepting in the afterlife, but you're sort of in limbo land until somebody is baptized for you here in the flesh. What? Um, and so, oh, this is rather people, infamous as a ritual as well. Yeah, I mean, they, they got into trouble, you know, baptizing um, Holocaust survivors or, or, or Holocaust victims, you know. Oh my uh, gosh, that's pretty. The God of <laughs> Yeah. So. So anyway. So against people's will, you can baptize them after they die. Well, if you're dead, you don't really have a. Will. You don't. No, no, know sure, what but, but no, but yeah, but like Their if someone isn't too happy about it, that's for sure, and that's what happened in certain. But contexts. if someone held like a Mormon baptism for me, like long after I was gone. Yeah, sure, I'm oh. not around, but that would suck because, I mean, yeah, of course well, it means nothing and I'm not going to be magically converted in the afterlife, but I don't want people to, like, try to save <laughs> but, me even after I'm dead. But, but how if you, you were know? a believer, if you were a believer in the context of the faith, maybe, you know, obviously to them it is a meaningful thing, but they've worked their way back through various lineages to to basically mythical ancestors and baptize them, which is where they infamously, they baptized the god Odin because in certain certain Scandinavian uh, lineages of royalty, they trace their descent back to the gods, right, as as living people. (laughs) And so there was a couple instances where they baptized those people given the heavy Scandinavian component in the the Mormon church. (laughs) Well, it's not an exact science. You know, you go back far enough and who knows if you've got the the record straight, but Mormons still try to do everything in such an orderly way that um, it's it is meaningful, and they and they claim that the reason, I mean, there there is this claim floating around that the the reason the internet was invented in the first place was specifically for genealogy and for the purposes of uh, people connecting and tracing their their lineage to the point where you know we're all one connected chain and and everybody gets their work done appropriately and gets a chance to accept Mormonism after this life. It sounds really kooky, but it's it's a thing out there. <laughs> uh, and it's funny because part of me, there's a Mormon part of me, because Mormons are quick to dismiss things like robot clergy and say like, <laughs> that's just silly. That's a gimmick. I agree with them the there. Was invented for, yeah, but then, it, you know, on the one hand, they're like making fun of a robot. And on yeah. the other hand, they're like, 
It's actually for tracking your lineage and getting everyone baptized who came before, as if that sounds like really in tune with the human condition in a way that a robot uh, priest doesn't. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. Either they're two versions of the same sort of silly, but uh, Mormons are quick to make fun of one side and embrace the other. It's kind of a strange thing. So yeah. I can think of positive aspects of technology that I've seen in, say, the last 25 years, which is with the rise of the internet, you had a lot of email lists, uh, equivalent of uh, discussion forums, mm-hmm. and that later on you had you know video conferencing and things like that. But even early on with just email lists and, and online forums of various sorts, where places where people you know, congregates or interested parties can gather. And if you're not part of one of the, the big mainstream faiths, and sometimes even if you are, it provides a vehicle to meet uh, either co-religionists or co-seekers and for people to, to, to talk and exchange ideas and maybe even to eventually, if they want, connect up in person, kind of like, I don't know, or something. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny. When that first started happening, uh, the Mormon leadership really uh, discouraged it and, and released several talks on, now don't go off and have your own study groups or meet people online and you know do anything that what we call uncorrelated, because then you start veering off into like logic and science and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Dangerous <laughs> stuff. Right. It also <laughs> results in some really weird intersections, like the uh, there's a Reddit Muslim no-fap group, <laughs> like a like an anti-masturbation, which is probably very traditional uh, Islamic. But it's, it's funny to see Muslims converge into that because they're now crossing over and uh, discussing these MRA-type talking points, things that, <laughs> that otherwise groups that would be against Muslims are now sharing discussions with conservative Muslims, like in their hatred of uh, feminism and... Hatred of women having freedom and uh, desire to show how much control you have over yourself, mm-hmm. you know, refraining from masturbating. And then there's like Muslim furries and just like really interesting intersections that would never have cropped up without the internet. Well, it's classic yeah, internet um, that, that there's a group for, you know, there's a group for anything. And if there's one of you in some town, there's probably one of you in another town. And, right. You know, right. 40, 40 years ago, you would have been. Lonely near. Uh, I don't want to pick on furries because that's that's an easy target for some people, and they're not all they're not always all that strange, you know. Hmm. But uh, you know, well, there there are furries where it's completely just like cosplay dressing up. Yeah, yeah. Fun. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't like the stereotype. Always that it's some some always kinky. Though obviously there are those out there, mm-hmm. um, for example. But just that if you not that were, there's anything uh, wrong you know, with kinkiness. Well, not that either. <laughs> But if you were in any kind of odd or unusual or even obscure subculture, you know, it used to be hard for people to connect. And mm-hmm. later on, there were zines and things like mm-hmm, that. Then there mm-hmm. were bulletin board systems. But the Internet, for better or for worse, obviously, because we've shown some negative examples, like has accelerated that. So, you know, but the, but there are positive aspects. Like, I mean, even for people, I mean, whether it's you're, you want to be involved in some non very mainstream spirituality or whether you're trying to get out of something yes like you yes. can find support and and friends and people of similar experiences and backgrounds that you can at the very least have open communication with and talk to right yeah as far as the uh, anti-masturbation side of things mormonism is definitely in that camp but they're very euphemistic about it it's, it's like they're very shy and don't like to talk <laughs> about like one of our leaders uh, there's there was an infamous talk 
uh, called Little Factories. And it was about how your body has like a little factory and sometimes it overproduces. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like they, 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 they teach these things. It's funny because it's like grown men and adults, but then it's like, and then you're a pee-pee. You know, it's like, it's almost like you're teaching like a two-year-old how to go to the bathroom. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. And in the Muslim NoFap Reddit, there was a, a guy who offers a Skype service who will like sort of talk you down and talk you out of it. And he helps you with controlling your, you know, desires or whatever. And I mean, it's an interesting, so strange. interesting service offered on Skype. You have to pay. For I had that? not. Yeah, I had been not been exposed to the in any sense to the idea of a of of you know, a no fapping subreddit. Of <laughs> Thank you, you for knew. sharing. That. Speaking of how you know how you're saying that Mormons aren't likely to embrace tech, I came across this um, Mormon Transhumanist Association. Uh, and they define themselves as the world's largest advocacy network for ethical use of technology and religion. And <laughs> sure. it, it's so strange. Like I was just looking through their Twitter page. They're linking to something called the Turing Church. And that is a community of seekers at the intersection of science and religion, spirituality and technology, engineering and science fiction. Uh, and they believe in things like technological resurrection defined as the ability to bring back to life people who died centuries ago and whose bodies have long since disintegrated. They believe future technology will be able to copy the dead from the past to the future and bring them back to life. They believe in like uh, alien civilizations resurrecting dead people mm. and uh, just really strange. Or they call it like they say they believe in system operators in a higher reality who run our own reality as a simulation. So this sounds like all like standard, you know, variants of transhumanist stuff. I mean, the only way it sounds Mormon to me and not being an ex-Mormon is maybe some of the priorities that they give to things like the resurrection of the past dead and such. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Mormonism itself has a resurrection doctrine. So basically um, we're living in the last days, and at any point now, Jesus is going to return. At first, it was like, you know, soon after the 2000s, but mm -hmm. now we're a little less uh, specific on dates, and it's more vaguely into the future. But still, we're in the in the fullness of times, as we call it as Mormons, and uh, the, the truths are being revealed, including all this tech. Um, and it's only, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's not very long until Jesus comes back. And then we have uh, a way that people will be resurrected based on how valiant they they were during their life. And Mormon Mormons don't really whip this out until you're like deeply embedded in in the culture or in the religion. Like it's never brought up like when we're trying to convert somebody because we know that um, sort of the you you don't want to cast the pearls before swine sort of thing, or you don't want to um, the milk before meat sort of doctrine. Um, so, so like a lot of Mormons, if they're believing and listening to this, which I doubt there are very many that would fall into that category, they'd be like, don't Bob, don't, don't share this part yet. No, they, they have to accept like a million other things before you can talk to them about the morning of the first resurrection. Um, but it's there, it's part of Mormon belief that you're, you're, you're going to be resurrected. Um, and 
that's a literal thing and and your body is going to be perfected in some way or another and so this transhumanist angle that these people are putting on it it doesn't surprise me especially kind of in this um postmodern many mormonism many mormon state uh where we're now um, there's kind of a movement inside of Mormonism to accept the differing versions of Mormons. Like they're the fundamentalists, the polygamists, the, you know, these transhumanists. Um, but you know, 95% plus of Mormons, as you think of Mormons would, would really be uncomfortable with this and wouldn't, would dismiss it as just fringy mm. stuff and somebody's pet project. And there's a couple dozen people saying they're the largest group of themselves. <laughs> and, uh, it's it's not that it's not rooted in some aspects of Mormonism. It's just that Mormons have this weird line that they draw in the sand that they don't talk about, but that they get really upset about outsiders or other Mormons going too far across that line. Like, let me give you an example. There's there's a reference in one of our scriptures that, that says that God resides somewhere in the cosmos, and one of the cl- closest planets to where he resides is called Kolob. And it's like the butt of every joke about Mormons, like Mormons believe, you know, that God lives on the planet Kolob. And then Mormons internally are like really upset about that. They're like, no, we don't know where God lives. All we know is that there's a planet called Kolob that's close to where God lives. Get it right. And like, we're not weird sci-fi nerds. This is, you know, there are planets in real life. This is rooted in reality. That's, that's just one tiny thing that you misunderstood. And and it's the same with this transhumanist stuff. If I were to put my Mormon hat on, I would say something to the effect of like, yes, of course we believe in the resurrection. It's in the scriptures. It's even in the Bible. Um, but then combining it with like uh, uploading your brain somewhere or yeah. tech, no, that's crazy, you know? And like you cross the line, you got mm-hmm. it wrong. You, you can go right up to the line, but then after that, you're in kooky territory. But on my side of the line, it makes perfect sense. Mm. But it's only crazy until a prophet of the church comes forward and, and says it's not crazy, right? Well, that's true. But that nowadays, modern revelation, as we call it, is is so far and few between. The, the, our, our current leaders are super old and and don't have much to say other than regurgitated crap from the sure. previous generations. I'm so. just saying, you could, you could theoretically, you, there could be some internal revitalization or movement within the church in Salt Lake City or something, and you could wind up with a young senior member of the church, say young, like 60 years old. Yeah, right. (laughs) And and he could come forward and and say, oh, I believe that the mechanism of of the resurrection that we're speaking of is through uploaded consciousness and nanotechnology making new bodies for everybody. And it might be very controversial, but it, it, it could definitely, I mean, the, one of the strengths, in one sense, of the Mormon Church is it because it has an idea that revelations continue to come, that right. it can adapt to the it, yeah, the the way to look at it as an outsider is it's able to adapt to changing social and cultural situations. Right. Never never mind that most of the time it's like twenty years late. You know, it's like let's give uh, black people the priesthood in nineteen seventy eight. You know, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but I was thinking it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or or right now, um, before they're going to uh, tackle the subject of uploading consciousness, they they have to deal with gay marriage, which of course yeah. the Mormon Church is completely against, and it's. It's counter to everything that the doctrine stands for, in, in a sense. Um, that's going to be the first thing that's going to tear them apart and that they're trying to figure out how to reconcile because they can't just say, love your neighbor, but don't 
let them go to heaven. You know, they're trying to have this middle ground where they used to be like completely against it and did things like shock therapy and all this crazy stuff in the eighties. But now they're trying to be politically correct, but hide behind their love of gay people while still excluding them from everything. Mm. Um, yeah, so they've got a lot of bigger problems before they can deal with like how how tech and biology converge. <laughs> so how do they even practice that? Like what do they what can they do on a daily basis, I wonder, to be a specifically transhumanist Mormon? Yeah, um not talk I'm, to their bishop about it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'm not sure because I don't I, I mean, if they're actually a practicing Mormon, they can't bring it up in in at church because they'll it'll just it'll make everyone uncomfortable it'll be frowned upon mm. i i imagine that they do it in their spare time and don't make noise about it um because i mean as long as they compartmentalize it and they don't evangelize or they don't start going after some of the core tenets mm-hmm. mormonism sort of lets you kind of do your your side hobbies and it's it's pretty open until you start saying things like I've got new doctrines it's like whoa 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 you don't you don't get to bottom up reveal things that's mm. a top down situation here in in Mormon land mm-hmm. so as long as they're kind of doing it on their so- on the side and they're not um But what are they doing are they're just like engaging in internet conversations like what else can you do to alter yeah, your body technologically or Exactly. I mean, well, this is like any kind of transhumanist thought. I mean, there are little things people can do, but it's mostly aspirational mm-hmm, for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when the singularity comes or when we get good nanotechnology, you know, various things. Because, you know, right now, like if it's about self alteration or, or improvement, you know, there's very clear limits on what people are even capable of doing. But it, there's a lot of aspirational thinking, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Doctrinally, they also have to be careful because as part of the resurrection doctrine, Mormons are conflicted on exactly what your, your, your perfect state or your, your, your resurrected body will be like. There's, there's some beliefs that, you know, you don't want to alter your body too much in, in the present day because then when the resurrection comes, it's just going to reset to what it was. But then there's differing opinions on whether or not like if you get a nose job you get your old nose or you get to keep your new one like nobody really knows and so people sort of pick their favorite path on what that resurrection doctrine will allow for Hmm. um so then the transhumanists have uh, add another layer of complexity where they're sort of digging deeper than than the doctrine you know than there than there is in the doctrine for them to find um and as long as they keep it to themselves and don't go too far with it or event, you know, share it too much, the Mormon leadership will be like, eh, okay, whatever. But as soon as they think that they found something that's meaningful on the level of like standard Mormon doctrines, then it's like, no, 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 you got to keep that, that, that you're, you're not part of us anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By what you're saying though, leaving aside nose jobs, I mean, it sounds like the, the church would have a real problem, I think, in medical technology of embracing uh, tran- people being transgender. Oh yeah, that is that is a uh, that is an open topic yeah. of much debate. You know, what happens in the resurrection? What happens with with transgender people? Some Mormons think the the doctrine suggests that you know your biology as it was at birth is restored. Others uh, don't want to even go there. Others yet think that you get to keep what you've decided. It's it's just all over the map, and it's just a place where religion falls short and and doesn't have a unified answer. 
Wow. So they actually talk about like what you're going to be like when you're resurrected? A, a bit. I uh, mean, it's come up more in the context of, of, of the, you know, of these topics where people are altering themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But even every- like piercings are like, even just like conservative little pearl earrings are altering yourself. Right. Well, those are, that's, those are gone. Th- that's true. And actually there's a, uh, there's, it's not a doctrine, but one of our prophets uh, in the nineties made a big deal about women having more than one piercing in each ear. Like, mm. Like that's like a slippery slope to, to you know <laughs> sex. <laughs> what about men? I have I have I don't know how many holes in my ears. I Same. I think I can't even like I ha- I can't even remember at the like. Yeah, I I have I'm at least nineteen. Really hard, really hard not to judge you guys right now. I mean, you you're probably good people, <laughs> but it's hard for me to say <laughs> with all the piercings you've told me about. <laughs> but when we're talking about technology and religion, I mean, leaving aside transhumanist stuff which is you know realistically fairly fringe right even though yeah if, if you work in if you work in tech and you kind of and you're into science fiction which i am i mean i've been around transhumanists since 91 something like that mm. the stropians back in the day and they had their magazine like that's that's kind of fringe and it's around but you know issues of gender and gender reassignment that's a current you know important topic in society i am mean, yeah. i have more than a few friends that have transitioned at you know in, in their lives are in the process of transitioning now and if they were actively practicing in say the mormon church or a catholic church any of these very orthodox religions um this would be something very very abruptly clear to them if it, if it wasn't accepted or if the doctrines went against it and when i was younger and involved in a neo-paganism and wicca quite a few of the people i knew at that time in the 90s and early 90s especially were queer, you know, they identify it as, as, as gay or bisexual, what have you. And part of the reason why they were involved in neo-paganism at the time, which is not a technology thing, but they were involved at the time is because their, their home faiths that they'd grown up in were so against what they considered themselves to be. That wow. They want pushed out of their faith. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a gay man. And, and then the pastor told me I'm going to hell. So now I'm a radical fairy. But then, but yeah, but then you find they found some other like religious identity, right? For me, like I question the way Islam uh, treated women and gay people. And I was like, well, religion is clearly not for me. You know, I did not go and find something else, but it's interesting. interesting. Yeah, same here. I I was like Christian post-Mormon for like three weeks before I'm like, fuck it. This is like, (laughs) you know, there's nothing, if Mormonism didn't, couldn't get it right and wasn't the the one true church um i'm not gonna find much here in becoming a methodist or a Mm. you know whatever Mm -hmm. so i and that's the path of most it's i mean it's hard for me to say uh definitively but um anecdotally most ex-mormons i've interacted with rarely find a replacement religion and those that do would never call it that i know that sounds kind of derogatory but um, most most uh, leave Mormonism, flirt with some form of Unitarianism for a little bit, and then are out. And then um, some end up getting more involved in skepticism or or atheism, and others just sort of are more agnostic and and just religion isn't part of their life, which is kind of more my category. It's not like I'm doing conferences on atheism because it's Ugh, probably to me, better I'm, to be honest. Movement atheism <laughs> isn't. Real great, either. Yeah. I mean, 
my post-Catholic, post-Christian experience, it, it kind of mirrors in the sense that once you reject the one true faith that you were a part of, mm-hmm. it makes on the, uh, on the level of being a one true faith, uh, other, others, you know, religions much less attractive. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, like I said, I wound up in neo-paganism and eventually around 2004, I wound up self-identifying as a Buddhist and engaging in, you know, in some fairly orthodox Buddhist activities. But you but don't even, like believe in God, is, do you? No, don't. Uh, right. I don't believe. I mean, when I was a neo-pagan, I didn't believe in God. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have kind of like Mulder in the X-Files. I want to believe on some level, but I am, I, I maintain a healthy, I think, <laughs> who knows, uh, rationality and skepticism. But mm-hmm. even when I was a Buddhist, you get, I mean, Buddhists have as many doctrines and institutional closed-mindedness in, especially outside of like say North America is anywhere else. I mean, it's it, their traditional faiths. Uh, but in the West, just like with neo-paganism, people wind up embracing aspects of it and the institutions, even if they even exist are often fairly new and often posts like the 1960s and whatnot. So the way they function while definitely having their down points is not like any kind of large institutionalized faith that maintains a giant cultural presence in a place and, and a certain level of social control. You know, if you're a, if you're a neo-pagan or a Buddhist and you don't get along with a monk or, you know, some teacher or something, you just like, wave and move on down the road mm-hmm. as you walk away. It winds up being very self-directed. And for me, the technology aspects are that it allowed me to connect to people and to meet people uh, in a way that I wouldn't have if I just had to rely on the people that I knew in yeah. person. Yeah. Right. Even back in the early 90s, you know, because we had email lists. And, so you're mm-hmm. talking to somebody in Toronto or New York or in the UK, and you may or may not ever actually meet this person in, in person in the flesh but mm-hmm. you have often relatively deep conversations and it can be about spirituality it can be about belief and so there's and, and that all of that is accelerated and you know often in good ways but sometimes in bad ways obviously yeah they actually have uh quran teachers that like offer quran lessons on skype like through video call to like kids in north america and they're calling in from pakistan and stuff and it's it's quite it's really weird to me. My cousin has hired a Skype Quran teacher for her kids. And they just go in and they like video call with him and Skype with him. And he like teaches them how to pronounce things. And they probably wouldn't have had access to a Quran teacher like that in the U.S. But I don't know. Is that, is that good or bad? I mean, leaving aside. To me, it's bad. <laughs> to me, yeah, I'm just I mean, like, ew, why are you about- doing this? You have feelings about Islam, clearly. Yeah, yeah. So on that level, I would assume, you know, you feel like, oh, I don't know about this. But in a general scheme of things. But also allowing not, your is, child this, to Skype with a man that you don't know just because he's a religious teacher. Like, I mean, the kid goes in the room. I'm sure she's talked to him a couple of times beforehand. But the kid goes in the room, they close the door, and, like, she's, like, reciting the Quran. And I'm like, what the you know, why would yeah. you is there, never Is there no that? reason that parents not in the same room listening to the whole thing? I mean, it's not inherent in, in the fact that they're Skyping that they have to leave them unattended with a strange individual. Well, yeah. interesting you mentioned that uh, Mormonism is dealing with a mini scandal on that front because, um, you know, a, a, as you progress through growing up in the Mormon church, you have various interviews with your with your Mormon bishop, and that's lay clergy. They're not trained, and they don't know how to 
handle things necessarily on a professional level. And, you know, in order to be given the priesthood or move through the ranks of, uh, uh, of the, the various rites of passage, you have these interviews and you, you're a 12 year old boy and you're going to be asked, um, when the last time you masturbated was, and your parents aren't oh in the room with gosh. you. Lie, and, lie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I did, of course. <laughs> like, that's what 90% of young that's boys do. That's really inappropriate. Yeah, I would be yeah, like... the time is it? That's horrifying that kids get asked that stuff. Like, you're completely... You have no language or no sort of way to even... Lie. Like, if you're caught off guard and... I don't know. I don't, you know, don't even know. I mean, I, th- I think the real, yeah. the real issue here is unattended access by an adult to your children yes. in, a, in a situation where, where the child would have trust with the person in, yeah. on some level. But I don't, I don't, I mean, obviously if, if you think that indoctrinating your children in a faith, and I think indoctrinating a young child in a faith is probably wrong. If you think that kind of thing is yeah. wrong, then obviously this it, it, it becomes problematic. But if you are an adult, say, and you're interested in aspects of spirituality and, and this is the kind of service quote unquote that's available to you and say you weren't wanted, say it was somebody who wanted to convert to Islam as an adult, you know, this could be very useful to that person, you know, leaving aside the fact that you might not think converting to Islam is a great thing. <laughs> sure. It, yeah. It, just, I mean, I used to do koan work with my Buddhist teacher that I had over Skype because koans are normally done in an interview setting one-on-one in person and and you get asked a question and you respond and you do various things, and we found that doing it textually, like through email or on, you know, didn't work very well. On the phone, kind of worked, but doing it on Skype worked fairly well because you could have the camera set up and you're sitting in a room and they're sitting in a room and you're looking at them on a monitor and they're looking at you, and it's not it's not the same sense of you know human presence as being across from somebody, you know. Mm. But on the other hand, it's pretty close, and so we were able to do interactions in that way that we both found be fairly useful at the time Mm -hmm. Uh, this was not institutionally sanctioned because like buddhism in north america is often completely irregular it's all lay ministers it's people that don't have quote-unquote proper training Mm -hmm. consider clergy but they might have very good training in general like meditatively or even even studying of like buddhist scriptures but it's all done very ad hoc catches catch can so you find people trying experiments like this quite a bit in the technology space let's just say it's not all negative right yeah yeah there's i'm sure there's the thing is that i can't separate my feeling that uh i think religion is negative generally i mean i'm not judging you or anything oh sure um you know i just sure it's not negative for someone who wants to explore this and yes absolutely we should have access to different ideas and ways to explore them but kids skyping with a strange older person, uh, you know, that's just kind of creepy. That is I mean, creepy. But, I, but on I the other hand, maybe it's, it's better. A, it's better than the alternative of being in the same room, that's right? That's true. So, that's true. <laughs> I mean, when we were kids, and our Quran teacher, he was a he was a nice guy. Well, I guess he wasn't a nice guy, but yeah. you know, he hated everyone that wasn't Muslim. <laughs> he thought they'd burn in hell. <laughs> he was nice to you. He was nice to me. Yeah. He yeah. he never like was abusive or anything like that. Like you hear some horror stories. That's what I meant. He's not like that. But my parents did not supervise those, uh, you know, Quran lessons because there's an assumption. Oh, he's a holy man, and he exactly. would never do such a thing. 
Same and, in Mormonism. Yeah. And that and that seems to be a dangerous assumption. I mean, we have we all know about the Catholic Church scandals. There's lots of evangelical Christian or Protestant Christian scandal. I mean, it's I think it's any institutional faith where people get, you know, put in these positions of authority, especially over younger people, that you wind up I, I, I wouldn't necessarily assume it's a high percentage, but it is definitely a percentage of people doing horrible things. Yeah. Well, and it's so un it's so avoidable because they might say Oh, that that's a few bad apples, or um, that's completely antithetical to that has nothing to do with Mormonism, or that person was acting on their own volition. Like, but they were empowered through the infrastructure and institution propping them up in that way. Yeah. And you know, what's the what's the downside of saying uh, if the parent wants to be in the room, let the parent be in the room, or don't stigmatize that, or yeah, I don't even don't think ask that certain questions. You they know, would um, uh, oppose it. It's just that many parents don't feel the need to be in the room, right? And that's the or you can record thing. it and review it later on fast forward. If you you know, there's yeah. there's no reason to leave adults alone with children in in any kind of institutional setting, you know, unsupervised. I mean, this but this could apply to schools as well. I mean, it's all kinds of situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Going back to the technology, we were talking about like indoctrination and reaching out and people connecting conversion. And you've mentioned like ISIS and YouTube and whatnot. And that seems to be this is a complete topical shift here, but that seems to be a you know a a, a space that's both problematic and definitely people embracing you know current trends in technology, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, extremists have really benefited from embracing current trends in technology on both sides of like the Islamic extremists and also the, you know, Western alt-right, their memeing and whatever, how they sneak in their white nationalism through LOL jokes and a cartoon <laughs> frog. And um, ISIS, actually, I was, um, I saw this thread on Twitter where someone was talking about how they had encountered like an internal discussion among ISIS about uh, the validity of using auto-tune in their propaganda songs because, <laughs> <laughs> because there are some like, you know, uh, stricter strands of Islam that forbid anything but uh, I think percussion instruments. So that's, that's it and singing. But then the more modern... <laughs> ISIS people want to use autotune. And so there was some argument in that. Oh, wow. I mean, how do you debate that? Do you, can you go to a higher authority or do you just let it play out on the internet? Like, because well, how high no authority do you go to, right? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, that's the thing. You might have your local leader or whatever, and you could also argue on the internet. I don't know. Mm. But autotune was an interesting topic. For ISIS, I thought. I'm just recalling yeah, yeah. The, the famous Sufi saint whose name escapes me who played the call to prayer on a sitar and got stoned to death. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> not surprising. I mean, Sufis are already considered heretics, right? Yeah. So This reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, Mormons can't drink alcohol, but I heard stories growing up of a Mormon wine taster. Because as long as you don't swallow. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the loopholes are amazing. Religious Aren't loopholes. They? I love those, especially the ones around sex. Oh gosh. Yeah, yeah, Mormons and sex. That's a the the Levi loving is is uh, a real thing, you know. Levi loving. As long loving? as nothing as long as nothing comes out. Um Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. That's hard all... though. No pun intended. 
<laughs> You're right. Yeah. Uh, but I, if you I mean, make a mistake, weird trends. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal because in Mormonism, uh, having sex outside of the outside of marriage is like second only to murder. So um, it's wow. a huge yeah. it's a huge sin that you need. You have to go through quite the process to to be repentant and um, get back on the path and and get everything fully restored to you as an active practicing Mormon. I mean, it's it's a little bit up to the lay clergy again to to dictate how case by case teens that have sex outside of marriage and then and then admit to it what they have to do to kind of get their standing back in order. But it's a huge deal. It's See, like, at least uh, they acknowledge the there's a, you know sex outside of marriage. Like, of course, it's haram in Islam too. But people do not approach teens very often with this topic because it's just understood that. It's just not going to happen. No way. Even similarly, we don't have those like, you know how they have those cautionary anti-masturbation tales like in Christianity? Oh, yeah, we have of those. Like you're yeah, going to yeah. have like hair on the palms of your hands. Like I You're going to get warts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't have that as much in Islam because it's so taboo that it's just not discussed. You cannot even discuss it to say it's bad. You know what I mean? Well, then how do you how, How do you, do you tell people not to do it? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. you got you to you, you have your own equivalent of a little factory story. Yeah, yeah, they do something. have those, but there's no like like anti-masturbation campaigns running in Pakistan, for example. You know, no PSA videos. On no, TV. no, 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 no. No suggestions about tying your hand to a bedpost. Nothing like that. No, no, because it's just understood. You just won't do it. I mean, there are like myths. When I started off uh, blogging, I started off as. Uh, a blogger about Pakistani sexuality. So I would get a lot of emails from young Pakistanis. And one common theme was, like among young young guys, was that they felt that uh, their energy was being sapped. If they masturbated, they're going to be bedridden. That's the only oh. thing that I've come across, really, that's been spread. But it, they really seem to believe that the more you do it, the the weaker your body becomes, and the more bedridden you'll become. And so I found many some... societal problems are explained right now. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but, but these people now have access to the internet. They were they were seeing your blog, right? I yes, mean, yes. For them, a lot of people emailed me and told me it was like life changing for them. But then the discussions around sexuality turned towards like religion and how religion impacts sexuality. And then I got really into talking about religion and now here I am. Right. That, um, that became the focal point of everything. Yeah. It, though it's hard, it's hard not to see, I mean, bringing it back to the technology topic, right? Cause it's a topic at hand, like how this is not destabilizing for any orthodoxy. Right, 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 that right. Engages in control, right? Because if you will let people, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, Iran, Pakistan, or Utah, get on the internet, or <laughs> I New like York, that grouping. You, 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 there's ultra orthodox Jews that have you know very tight strictures in their communities. Yes, I saw that documentary on Netflix. I forget what it's called. One of Us, yeah, maybe. I, I saw it as well, but I don't remember. But you know, any group that engages in high level institutional control, any kind of like ready access to outside information is destabilizing of that control. Yeah. And yet we have these slabs of glass and metal that most of us are walking around with, with full access to the World Wide web and, and the internet and everything that goes with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, I guess Saudi is still pretty safe from that because they censor everything. Like I remember as a teenager, like Marilyn Manson sites were censored. It was very frustrating. Um, <laughs> you know, anything to do with I have the gossip seen Manson culture. Manson concert three times, so yes, I understand. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, and in Pakistan too, they, they, uh, I think banned YouTube for a few years. Also the Wikipedia page for breast cancer was censored. You can't really ban ban things because at the very least there's Tor. Right, exactly. Exactly. People figured out a way around it. There's even copper phone lines. Like you could do modem level, like call another country to a to a computer service. I mean, there's. I mean, that's not fast, but there's there's. So you can't be connected into the modern world, in any sense, yeah. And culturally and 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 economically, and not have it leak in. I mean, I, I heard yeah. all kinds of stories about Iran mm-hmm. and satellite dishes and the way people were 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 getting information in and out before yeah. and after crackdowns. Yeah, even uh, in Pakistan after the YouTube ban, like everyone was using VPNs and. So I guess they make their populations uh, more competent in tech that way (laughs) because they have to find ways around things. But it's scary. In Saudi, it's scary. If you are breaking the rules, there's like your heart is beating fast. Like I remember um, because there's a chance that you will get like the chop, right? That's always in the back of your mind, even though... You know, I grew up distant from that. I wasn't exposed to it like how uh, local Saudis are. It's still something in the back of your mind that if you go overboard, you can get yourself, your family in deep trouble, at least deported at the very least because we're not Saudis. Right. So, yeah. That's a, that's a, uh, I'm trying to, it's hard to even quantify that because, you know, all of my get in trouble stuff is like, on the one hand, I could argue from my Mormon perspective is way worse because it's it's my my eternity is in question. But on the other hand, you know, getting something chopped off um, somehow feels more real. <laughs> right, right, right. It's more immediate. It's like, yeah, more immediate. How do you how do you reconcile? Wow, and speaking of crazy. technology, I mean, I've heard that in uh, Jeddah, the city that I lived in, they have a chop chop square. I mean, we were pretty shielded from this. I didn't know much about it because information about Saudi Arabia is is very well hidden from people who live in Saudi Arabia. So Saudi censors a lot of documentaries and things about Saudi Arabia. So you don't really know a lot of what's going on around you. Mm. So when I left and I watched uh, an independent documentary on Saudi Arabia, like I learned so much that I had no idea about. And it was happening all around me. This is... It's so strange. Like, so this Chop Chop Square where they do their public beheadings, they have like this sophisticated drainage system for collecting blood. Like, can you imagine? Like, they have a drainage system dedicated to blood from beheadings. It's like horrifying. Well, if you do anything systematically, I guess you got to think it all the way through. It's a giant mess. <laughs> that's that's very true. However, they are very ill-prepared for rainfall because it happens so rarely. So if it rains in at least the city that I was in, the city's flooded. Flooded. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but I, I know even in Saudi Arabia, going back into the 80s, they had problems containing information about the uh, the various jihadis and, and the movements to go to... Uh, was it Bosnia and, and various other places. Mm. So they had, you know, young men 
talking to people and circulating cassette tapes and VHS tapes mm-hmm. and meeting, meeting in small groups. And it was, you know, engaging in, you know, extremist form of Islam that wasn't being approved by the Saudis, I, I assume for political reasons as much eh, as they else. like, they like extremist forms of Islam. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I read an, I read one, I read the autobiography by the, uh, the man that was Osama bin Laden's uh, bodyguard in this autobiography. He talks about quite a bit about, having to skulk about with various people and meet in apartments to, to get information. Cause he wanted, he wanted to be a jihadi and about getting information to do this and having to try to sneak out of the country under false pretenses and whatnot, because it was also frowned on. And even that in that circumstance, they were circulating tapes and pamphlets mm-hmm. and books and they had pamphlets and trunks that they were handing out to people, trunks of cars. Yeah. Even uh, there was a book written by a princess, I think, about the horrible abuse that she'd suffered um, in Saudi Arabia, and that book was banned. But I mean, it was out there, right? Like, so they 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 try to contain it, but they obviously they cannot. Especially now, they just cannot. Which is why I think they're going to be forced to change things slowly, slowly. Now they've started with the uh, you know lifting the ban on driving uh, on women, which is just unthinkable from when I was back there. I spoke yeah. to two Saudi women on my podcast and they were saying that, uh, you know, women were having like driving themed parties with driver license cakes. And it was so sweet, really. Do you know what the what the consequence was for driving as a woman before it became OK? And the reason I ask is because I'm curious how how, how Saudi Arabia dealt with the implementation, because whenever Mormons do something that was like. The worst thing in the world yesterday and got you kicked out and then today it's like it's okay that you're black and whatever you know mm. then then all of a sudden you have to reconcile the whole history of when it wasn't okay and what what do you yeah. do for those people that were punished before you know yeah. like well there was um, never really a large-scale problem with implementation because women did not dare try it it's yeah, only I'm, recently I'm sure some example of a woman somewhere that got punished for driving, and I wonder how she feels. I'm maybe, sure maybe there is, but uh, again, I don't. Concern. Yeah, I mean, now recently in the past decade or so, I heard about women doing it, but because they post on social media, there's only so much that you can do to punish that woman because she's being observed by the uh, world. They did put them in prison and stuff like that, but no. But you're asking about the all? social the social justification, Bob retroactively right like we said this was bad and now we say it's okay and how do you how do you reconcile those two right yeah yeah because you you can't just turn overnight uh you know mormonism had uh, the the blacks and the priesthood example isn't a very good one um as as they call it but the uh uh polygamy you know polygamy Mm -hmm. was a huge it was a huge, huge deal as as a core part of Mormonism up until you know uh, Utah needed to become a state or wanted to become a state in the late nineteenth century, and then yeah. and now and then what happened? Battling like, with the FLDS, right? Like yeah, and and there was like a few decades after the prophet came out and said, "Just kidding, God says polygamy is not okay anymore," and it's like, <laughs> well, some of us are kind of a uh, a ways into this thing with yeah. a few wives. What, what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's still, I mean, it's, it was even in the eighties, I don't know about more recently in being in suburbs outside of Salt Lake city, you could spot polygamists any day of the week. If you went to the, like the local mall or, or whatnot, they were easy to spot. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. They, they have a very uh, interesting style of choice. <laughs> a very 19th century mode yeah. of dress and uh, bonnets and whatnot, but they weren't, I mean, I know that I know about the, uh, the various 
things that happen in smaller towns and in, in rural areas. But they were even in Salt Lake. They were they were not invisible and they weren't hard to spot. They're right out there in the open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and even to this day, even though that happened, you know, the change in doctrine. It's over a hundred years old now. It's still something that uh, Mormonism has to has to deal with, like literally on a daily basis. People, people still confuse, you know, the different groupings, and also um, uh, also probably fact, because people throw it in their face as a form of hypocrisy, right? Like it changing is. like it, that. Well, you have the you also have the instance like your great grandfather did it. Why can't you? Right. Well, and it's even more nefarious than that. It still exists to this day. We just don't talk about it. So here's how it exists today. Uh, public service announcement, and Mormons hate it when I say things like this, but it's the truth. Um, if you're a man and your wife dies and you marry a second woman, you can be sealed to the second woman. And sealed means that you can be married to her for eternity along with your first wife. So it's assumed that when you die, you will be with your two wives in heaven, even though today, in the present day, uh, polygamy is frowned upon and Mormons, especially in political circles and whenever they do outreach, they want to distance themselves from it. They still practice it. And because their doctrine says that if you do a Mormon marriage after you've already had one, when the first spouse dies, only one direction, only if you're a man, then you get multiple women who are your wives after this life. Whereas women, of course, can only be sealed and married to one man. Right. And until they get rid of this, I mean, it's, it's maybe it sounds like a stupid technicality, but I like to sort of rub it in their face because you can't have it both ways. You can't say like, oh, you know, bad polygamy. We yeah. don't do that anymore. And then still do it secretly behind the scenes, um, especially when you have yeah. a doctrine yeah. that well, is much more concerned with the eternities than with the, you know, with the present day. So, well, Islam. Anyway. That, doctrine, that doctrine has other repercussions. I remember stories people my mother knew in Salt Lake probably still knows that were older ladies that were afraid of dying because their late husband had been abusive and by their own beliefs once they died they were going to join him for eternity. Oh yeah. that's so sad. It's true. That's that's uh, it doesn't surprise me that could be a real thing. Yeah. Yeah I spoke to an ex Muslim extremist on my podcast and he talked about how you know he was he was a self-loathing gay person who hadn't really come to terms with it. And he also, you know, hated the West while living in the West. And he had considered like doing something like a suicide bombing. But the one reason that stopped him is that if he died, he would have to face the fact, you know, uh, in the afterlife that he's gay and he's going to be punished. So that's one thing that prevented him from going all the way. Wow. Yeah. So he basically did kind of a an analysis and is like, you know, being gay after this life is worse than being gay as a Muslim today in the current life. That's wow. Yeah, yeah. But there's no good endpoint in that scenario, right? Uh, no, know, because right? eventually Everyone's he'll gonna die. die. Right, yeah. right. I guess he he um he, well, maybe he could become a transhumanist and then never die. <laughs> well, I think he stopped believing in that uh, homophobic okay. stuff, so he's right, much right. more at peace with himself now. But going back to the uh, the polygamy stuff, Islam also uh, permits polygamy and puts a number on it. It's four wives that mm. you can have. And the reason that I have gotten from people that, it's justified only one way is because if it went the other way, you wouldn't know whose kid is who. 
So in this time, it makes okay. no sense to me because we have, you know, technology to be able to tell. Sure, yeah. I so mean, why yeah. keep that rule? Bring it around to technology and ask, go ask any mom, well, if we can genetically test every child when they're from a blood sample, then how is this an issue? Well, I mean, if the issue is cost, then that's different, but... You know? Well, I'm just like, how, how, is it a, how is it a doctrinal issue if that's the justification? I mean, this is leaving aside the whole question of who cares, except like culturally, who anybody yeah. is. Right, right. Of, oh, and going back to the question you had about Saudi Arabia, I don't think that Islam, Islam itself forbids women driving. I mean, obviously, there's no scripture against like women in cars because there's no cars, but and there's instances of in hadith of women on camels. Um, yeah. But this is a specific Saudi Arabia thing. So I think okay. the, the people wanting to change it now can just say that that was never Islamic to begin with. Uh, okay. So there's kind of a, a, a threat of separation of church and state or something. You just sort of throw the, the political institution under the bus and you're like, hey, I mean, that's a different thing. That's how they implemented laws and stuff. You know, we, uh, we still um, are okay by. Yeah, the I wouldn't say faith. that they want to separate mosque and state okay. at all there they just ha have a different interpretation going forward maybe okay. um but interesting let's quickly talk about maybe religion in space all right yeah sure. so i mean i read this article about a muslim astronaut and the challenges that he was facing on like in terms of praying in space because without a lack of gravity you really can't like you know face one direction specifically, and prayer times are all messed up because they're based on, you know, sunrise and sunset times on Earth. Fasting is near impossible because of the sunrise and sunset thing again. Also, they do this ablution ritual with water before each prayer, and water in space is scarce. So these are all things that were challenging for him. And then I think he found some like imams who like reinterpreted scripture and told him that, you know, maybe just face earth if you can while praying. Like it's so, I mean, to me, it just says that, you know, if religion is only able to be practiced on earth, then it's, I don't know, maybe it's not all that divine. That idea has come up, I mean, about specifically about praying towards Mecca has come up in like science fiction. Fairly oh, often, really. Um, so, I mean, wait, not less the weightlessness and the fact that you know, if you're a star explorer, imagine imagine Star Trek and you're on the Enterprise and you're actually a Muslim, even though apparently there's no religion in Star Trek, uh, but you're actually a Muslim and, and you're moving at warp speed to the cosmos. How exactly do, are they supposed to pray towards Mecca? Right? I mean, it's the same kind of problem. Yeah. One would one would think in a, in a religion that's not ossified or you know is culturally responsive to its its members not just institutions that people would come up with a rational like accommodation right mm -hmm. you know like oh you just we just pick your arbitrary time is a time in mecca yeah yeah and so right and so that's that's when that's when you know when dawn is in mecca that's when your dawn is except yeah. because you're going around the planet so dawn and dust come over mm -hmm. and over again and you're moving and you know f face towards earth and strap yourself in so you're not floating around and Handy wipes are good for, for washing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mormons are a lot more pragmatic in this on, on this topic. I mean, the, the, the whole creation story and, and uh, 
how God organized matter and and uh, the earth came to be and where we go after this life. There's sort of a theme of like, we may not understand it, but uh, the, the cosmos are definitely this way that God organizes things that we just don't see or understand completely, but that'll be made known to us in, in the hereafter. And so I can't think of anything um, prohibitive of like, if Mormons were to go into space, or if if uh, our our species was eventually able to to colonize another planet or something, it really wouldn't get in the way of anything because we don't have anything that's so temporal as to affect us. Like maybe it is the one true religion. That's what I'm trying to say. I wanted to end <laughs> with uh, some pamphlets I'm going to mail you guys. <laughs> what nice. if you landed on the pla- planet Kolob? And, uh, <laughs> no, stop with Kolob. <laughs> or, or was it Kobol, as in the first Battlestar Galactica? <laughs> I know, right? That's another uh, fan favorite. Uh, I think some Mormon was involved in the writing room yes, of that's what Battlestar heard. Galactica. And they just changed around some syllables and no. references. But half of the basis of that... TV show is like Mormon related. This is the nineteen seventies Battlestar Galactica, where it was very Egyptian themed, and they were they were looking they were looking for Earth, but they originally come from the planet Cobalt, which they found in the show, which was covered in pyramids, and there was a bunch of this ancient astronauts <laughs> stuff going on. Oh, I've never seen any of them, so I'm probably uh, missing it, all your references. It's a product of the seventies. And There's now I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for that for saying that, aren't I? <laughs> There's definitely inside of Mormonism a healthy appreciation and, and uh, of science fiction, and um, in fact, one of uh, Mormonism's claim to fame is the, the author Orson Scott Card. I don't know if any of you've read Ender's Game or oh, saw the movie. Uh, I mean, depending on. <laughs> I'm going to suppress a rant right now about Orson. Scott I know, Card. I know. He's more. He's just as famous for his homophobia as he is for his science fiction, <laughs> which is not doing Mormons any favors. Or maybe it is. I don't know. It depends on which side of the fence you're on. Um, but anyway, I, I, I guess there's not that much to say other than that. Uh, uh, there's there's a healthy appreciation for science fiction inside of Mormonism, and and even in some of our doctrines. That that we use as the basis of look at me saying we <laughs> that we use as the basis of uh, of of showing how we're more enlightened and and have more knowledge from God. Or we talk about things like God organized humans out of intelligences. We use verbiage sometimes that's like very in tune with the laws of thermodynamics. Oh, there's it, some vague just, uh, Islamic science out there. It's so silly, though. It yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. I think the Mormon, the Mormons benefit from having been founded in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. The more recent, more recent, your 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 strange cult that becomes a religion is founded, the more in tune with, in some, in some sense, with modern science and sensibilities. Very true. To a limited extent, it's likely to be, or at least to, to acknowledge it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it cuts both ways because on the one hand, the history is so fresh that you can kind of see all of the breadcrumbs and and reconstruct. Uh, how Joseph Smith is a narcissistic, you know, uh, <laughs> seeker of sex wanted uh, to facilitate uh, all of his desires through creating an institution. I mean, that's the most cynical read, but um, it's not hard to read up on what was really going on 150 years ago. But at the same time, um, there's not as much to reconcile uh, on some of these other things when when you're dealing with ancient religions that are mm. very much a product of their time and place. I'm sure you, you both struggled with that whole like, oh, wow, how come God didn't 
reveal any like practical sanitation advice of thousands of years ago right, or whatever. Right, it's, right. Inter- it's interesting in the I mean, I've been talking a lot about Catholicism just because of my youth. It's in the in the space of Catholicism, at least in 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 the last century, in the last say sixty years, they've been relatively willing to acknowledge, unlike a lot of the other Christian faiths. Uh, facts of science. So the Big Bang, at least, when, at least when I was still Catholic, the Big Bang was recognized as a acceptable explanation with God's hand, of course. Uh, yeah, same for- in the Muslim circles that I was uh, growing up in. There was never this hardcore, rigid adherence to um, creationism. I mean, there so, is. Yeah. There are group, Muslim groups like that. Evolution and said, "Oh, that you know, God's hand guiding." Exactly. That's fine. Yeah. So there's that. I mean, I identify, you know, these days largely if I had if I had to pick a strand as a Zen Buddhist, uh, you know, with the little asterisks there. And when we talk about space and technology and whatnot, as an American Zen Buddhist, not part of some you know thousand year old institutional structure in Japan or China, right. like it's all very flexible. Because believing, you know, Buddhism has all of the problems with with hardcore doctrine and unquestioning, like things handed down, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that, that's very much a present thing. But as a Western Buddhist, you know, you can call us dilettantes at times or not. But as someone who's effectively picking and choosing the aspects that work or appeal, like the idea of an, an astronaut who's a Buddhist is like no big deal because, like, like Buddhism is about human experience and the nature nature of human existence and suffering and, and things like that and how we're dissatisfied with things without really getting into it. And so the idea of a, of a astronaut, you know, reading some words of the Buddha and engaging in some meditation, it's like, Oh yeah, no big deal. Yeah. Not a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> probably do it in a secular. I mean, there, there's lots of mindfulness, which is ultimately derived from the Buddhist meditation. That's I, I I'm fully expecting that there's astronauts up there, you know, within the last two years that we're doing meditation on like the space station. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, Albie, you bring up a you bring up a really interesting point. I, I like how you, you know, you you had disclaimers attached to the way you identify yourself nowadays, and I think there's this propensity, like it's it's hard to like put a label, like if somebody were to ask me, like what what are you now in your post slash ex Mormon state, and I'd be like, I I don't know, agnostic, atheist, and then. Uh, people would dissect that and be like, okay, so which thing do you subscribe to? And it's like, oh gosh, I, <laughs> you know, and I, and, and I know, I wonder for you if, if you have issues with this too, like it's, it's sometimes words escape me when people want me to explain my current state of how I think of the universe. It's not, it's not so simplistic as to find one label and subscribe to it. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's also very context dependent, right? If I'm, I, I do Pilates and hang out with some kind of wooey Berkeley people. And if I'm <laughs> nice. talking, to, if I'm talking to them and I know some of them have, uh, Oh, they believe in energy work and they believe in this and they believe in that, you know, I, I'm going to frame things a little bit differently than if mm. I'm talking to a coworker, who's a friend, therefore it's an okay conversation to have right? mm. a coworker. Who's a friend who I know like doesn't believe in anything and it's not antagonistic, but like basically is an atheist and doesn't want, you know, doesn't want to participate in anyone's bullshit. Right. And, and but they're asking me like, what do you do? What do you believe? And then I'm going to frame it. I'm going to frame it more in the, in the language of the person that's going to hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Good point. Like I was alluding to earlier, I mean, in kind of a X-Files, 1990s X-Files says Mulder, I, I want to believe. I mean, I definitely have, spiritual leanings some of which are probably i wouldn't say unexamined but not necessarily justifiable as far as aspects of belief but when it comes down to it 
for myself, I'm a product of, I was born in the early 70s, I'm a product of late 20th century North America, been through several you know, religious institutions in the course of my life. I've been exposed to others like through family and whatnot. And so, you know, I came at it from a self, kind of a self-indulgent, self-exploratory, depending how you want to look at it way, right? You know, you know, finding things that make your life, my own life, work better Mm -hmm. and to cope with the the pain and frustration of, of existence in the world. So, you know, in one sense, I don't need to justify it to anybody else. But in another sense, like, it's very clear to me that, there's a lot of bullshit out there that yeah. people believed, yeah. told to believe, or the book says to believe it. And that kind of unexamined, like just embracing of it, like is completely antithetical to me. I mean, if you want to, if you want to embrace like a Gnostic myth or some story from the Bible or some story from folklore, because it's meaningful to you, you know, meaningful is, is the key word here. Not because there is some God or gods out there telling you that that's, this is the reality of things and everybody else is wrong. Cause you just, I mean, I just, I don't see how I, it seems like a very difficult space for, for various traditionalist religions to exist in the current era mm-hmm. and not have these kind of, any kind of self-examination or even questioning of what they believe. Cause any, even a cursory look, there's so much, But even outside of traditional religions, there's like the dogmatic atheists sort of that have replaced prophets with these other personalities. And so while the term atheist describes me just fine, it's the baggage around it that I cringe at, you know, It, it, it has certain connotations with it. And I'm always like... I'm not that kind of atheist, you know, <laughs> or even the term ex-Muslim. The movement was such a, like, it was such an amazing thing for me to find that there were other people leaving Islam talking about it. And it was so noble, like this goal of uh, destigmatizing apostasy from Islam. But now it's become this strange vehicle for a right-wing agenda, sort of, teaming up with Dave Rubin and, I don't know, Mm. people normalizing people like Dennis Prager and uh, Infowars. Isn't the problem here here a bunch of angry dudes being angry? (laughs) Sure, but there's a lot of ex-Muslim women too. There are some that come from very extremist backgrounds who sort of view Islam through that lens as if everyone is the extremists that hurt those people. And that's certainly not true. So I feel like they're not going about critiquing Islam in a very reasonable or rational way. That's why they're happy to like make racist jokes with Ann Coulter or, you Mm. know, this is just not what I signed up for. So I I, become more and more hesitant to use the term ex-Muslim, even though I'm still using it for now. Yeah. But do you guys have any closing thoughts? Uh, hmm. <laughs> closing thoughts. Be nice to your Mormon neighbors. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're on a mission here. Yeah, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I always I, I I oscillate between like you know burn it down, fuck it all, to like you know we're all the same. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> so uh, maybe some of what I I said during the the course of this conversation is making me like swing the other direction. You know, it's not that bad, especially when I hear uh, the crazy shit that goes on 
in in the in the Muslim communities, uh, Mormonism is is quite tame by comparison. So, <laughs> you know what? In some ways, I find it a lot more extreme. There's no like, of course, we have like jihadists and shit like that, but there's no like on a, a regular moderate Muslim level. There's no organized sort of, I don't know, going door to door and. You yeah, know, you don't have like sixty thousand strong. You know, you don't have like this army of youth that's yes, going out. See, and, to me, as someone who grew up as a Muslim, that seems pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just the aspects of a, of, a, of missionizing religions, which you know, yeah, any form of Christianity has been at one time or another. Yeah, and I mean, probably- to be fair, my family was very like progressive, liberal, mild Muslim, and I think Mormonism is probably like. One of the more devout, more, I don't want to say Orthodox extreme. or more orthodox, uh, practicing. Or yeah, <laughs> more orthodox yeah. types of Christianity. Yeah, right? yeah, because there isn't, it's true, there, there isn't a middle ground, at least some liberal Mormons like to pretend there is, but you know, you can't drink, you can't have sex before marriage, you have to give 10% of your income to the church. Oh, we have that too. Oh, when see, I so. lived in Pakistan, see, this, the, the banks would just extract it on a certain date, like from your bank account. And oh, wow. did, yeah, <laughs> so we would be scrambling. There was some like loophole form that if you sign that form, they wouldn't take it. So like the night before, everyone would be scrambling, going to the banks and be like, no, 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 don't take my money. So yeah, crazy. My Methodist grandfather paid 10% of his income to his local church, you know, for my entire life. But, his entire life. But was it, does it, did it have the stigma if you stop paying, then you can't go to the temple, you can't be, uh, you can't do anything at church, you can, you can sit in the pews, but you can't have any position of authority. So no, Mormonism but Su- very, Susie taking the collection plate would notice and we'd probably get around. Uh, okay, so it's more indirect, okay. <laughs> yeah. It was just expected, I think it's expected, it was expected in Protestant denominations. But how do they calculate be, oh, the percentage is accurate? Like what it's, if It's self-calculated, it's just, the idea was is if you were a good Christian, you were tithing 10% of your income. So you're just, you're trusted to give 10%, whereas in Pakistan, I, the bank just takes percent of whatever's <laughs> the in there. The bank just takes care of it for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. As, as far as my closing thoughts, I mean. I think a lot of it comes down to, for me, I mean, think of the technology front. Um, in reaching people online is, I don't know, I mean, ability to connect with people and, and even people that definitely have different viewpoints was something that I've always seen as a strong point of the internet and the connectivity and the rampant, like, self-filtering bubbles, radicalization in divergent groups of the last couple of years has really put that to question for me, right? Because if you would ask me all this kind of stuff 10 years ago, I'd say, no, no, the internet, it's, it's, it's a uniform good. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it made such a positive impact on my life. I mean, absolutely not depressing alien. Yeah, but it made a positive impact on ISIS's life too, right? So, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's yeah. It's about the, the needing aspects of sitting home alone playing on a computer too when I was younger. Yeah. But I, I would have thought it was a good thing because I, I connected to so many people and I'd made friends that were literally on the other side, like in New York City that I'd never met in person that I'd been friends with for 10 years mm-hmm. and it was all good. But like Reddit, which is not all bad, but Reddit of the last few years and things like the 4, 4chan, the chans, and then Twitter and Facebook have kind of put that all very much to question. And then, and then one has to ask, though, is that, is that the nature of online communication, self-sorting, or is it because things like Twitter, Facebook, you know, social networks 
are accelerating and worsening those trends with their algorithms, right? With, mm. with the way that YouTube, especially, is, right? How yeah. it predicts, like how it sends they, you to worse and worse videos, and then next thing you know, it you're a white nationalist, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm going to feed you more of what you already like and want, and it's it's you know the brave new world aspects, and this is so. Is it is it online and technology inherently lead to this, or is it because we've gone down a, a darker path, and and it could be turned around if people. Either either the services changed, people disengaged, or nurse services came online, or I don't know, right? I mean, I don't. I think inherently that like more communication is better, and the in the internet at its core is a communication tool. But we've definitely seem to have gone through a major shift in the last five to ten years compared to what it was for ten or fifteen years before that, because mm-hmm. it first became really popular, yeah. like around '94. And the the internet of 1994 to 2004 is very different than the internet of like 2004 <laughs> to 2014 or 2006 to 2016, right? Yeah. Maybe think of Obama in in the last couple of elections and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't this how it always is? Something's like super cool and like almost utopian, and you're like, "This is awesome." The rest of the world should have it, and then everyone gets it, and you're like, "Ah, oh, fuck, we're still yeah. a bunch of idiots." <laughs> Yeah, but you go back and you you go, oh yeah, the early 1990s internet before like the big web boom, and then right after that was so cool. We had these great communities, and you realize, yeah, and we were all a bunch of As- Aspergers, <laughs> white guys talking sure. to ourselves and screaming at each other and saying, "You need to grow a thicker skin," and they're like, "Yeah," and you know, "Fuck you," you know, and that kind of thing. And it was just a bunch of dudes like fapping away at each other <laughs> on the internet and so it wasn't it wasn't an inclusive community and it wasn't broad and it only became inclusive and broad later on but i still i mean i also still put part of the blame on as much as i i love twitter and i hate facebook anyway um, me too i put it i put it on both of those as well because i mean i you know anytime you respond to anything that's a divergent viewpoint on either of these systems if you don't personally know the person like in person, in the flesh, well, and they're a friend of yours. Like it just goes down such a like complete hole immediately. Oh, yeah. Almost. yeah. Like right. don't even bother to respond. I mean, it's not even don't feed the trolls. It's like don't even bother to respond to any somewhat negative viewpoint because it's just going to become accelerating. Yeah, negative. yeah, that's so true. Make that a million, you know, amplify that a million times, and <laughs> yeah, you get right. Yeah. yeah, well. So speaking of religion and technology, do you think, you know, I got this question from a Twitter friend of mine, Jason, and he was saying that, do you think uh, religion embracing technology, is that just a form of what it's always done to try and, like, appeal to younger people? And the example he used was, like, a rapping vicar. Or is religion truly trying to update itself? No, rapping monk. So yeah, yeah. You think it's just a, another rapping monk or vicar? I think I think people exist in their cultural context. Like, in rap is a thing, for example. And so, why wouldn't you be a rapping guy plus whatever you know, your religion is? Because it's 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 twenty eighteen, right? Mm. Yeah, I I think religion is very selective, at least in my experience, is very selective on how it embraces technology. So if it can help. Uh, spread the good word and make it more efficient and you can highlight your scriptures digitally and share passages more easily and search uh, you know certain indexes of of you know sacred texts that's uh, that's all well and good because that's all within with with the you're playing bumper bowling you're with your your uh, 
<laughs> you're you're looking at the right stuff and and you're just being able to take advantage of it all the more but as far as embracing the complete openness of it i think those those barriers are still going to go up mm-hmm. yeah because they're not going to want they not they don't want people free thinking amongst themselves while reading these scriptures right right right, right. right. The, the loss <laughs> of authority and control in any institution is going to be a constant problem. You know, they want a responsible adult indoctrinated in the right ways to be interpreting <laughs> things. And this doesn't just apply to Mormons. I mean, this applies to Everyone. pretty much any, yeah. any faith that's, that's organized in any fashion, right? And any faith that's not organized in any fashion, give it 200 years and it probably will be. So, <laughs> Yeah. Right. All right. Well, on that note, thank you both for coming on and having this very interesting conversation with me. I thought it was uh, a good chat. And um, where can people find you, Bob? Yeah, so I'm, I'm on Twitter, um, at Bob Caswell. And I also have a couple podcasts. Uh, one of them is Mormon-related. It's a bunch of ex-Mormons kind of just exploring life after Mormonism. That's called Infants on Thrones, which is a weird title, but it's a throwback to a Mormon doctrine about babies becoming gods um, uh, <laughs> if they die before the age of eight here in this life little esoteric. Uh, and then I also have another podcast called Practically Culture that I host with a, another ex-Mormon friend. We've been friends for over 20 years since high school. And um, we just uh, talk about movies, video games, TV shows. It's almost like our attempt to just, it's called Practically Culture because it's like, you know, as if there's things to talk about other than than religion after you're, you're out of it. So mm-hmm. uh, those are my little pet projects. Cool, cool. Check that out, guys. And you, Al? Yeah, uh, so I blog very occasionally, starting up again at openbuddha.com. And I'm on Twitter as Lorem Gibson, and that's L-O-R-E-M-G-I-B-S-O-N. It's a little joke, but mostly you know, there and on my blog, I talk about science fiction, tabletop role-playing games, geekery, and computer security stuff occasionally, and only occasionally about religion and specifically Buddhism on my blog on occasion, but that's about it. All right, cool. Well, nice chatting with you guys. Yeah, likewise. It was yeah, great. This is good. Good time. Yeah. Okay, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it making some noise about it or contributing via patreon patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes no ian mangoes also you can follow me on twitter at nice mangoes if you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly patreon one you can do so via paypal nice mangoes.blog at gmail.com remember no ian mangoes if you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest you can email me there too A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help.